We are kind of a mess, aren't we? Not kind of. We are a mess. Broken. Those things that we saw on the screen there are all representative of, of the brokenness of our worlds. And that's just the physical side of things. The spiritual brokenness. Shattered hearts and without Christ in our lives, Christ as our Savior and Lord, an eternity condemned separation from God in hell, suffering. Um, we're in a desperate situation. Do we understand that? Do we understand what kind of desperate need we have for Jesus? The desperate situation we are in apart from Christ. I don't know if you've ever been in one of those situations where you're like, this is bad. <laughs> this is desperate. I think for me, the only time I'd really think of is, I know I've shared the story with you before, the time like our canoe flipped over up in, um, on a wilderness trip, and, and we were there in the month of May, a week after the ice had cleared off the lake, so the water was cold, we were in the middle of it, and I just was like, I'm not sure there's going to be a good ending to this story. I was desperate. I felt that. Um, that's how we feel. That's how we should feel outside of Jesus Christ. Um, I came across, I thought of this story, you all know that uh, I like to read um, uh, stories of adventurers and, and mountain climbers, and this is about the rescue of a man named Lincoln Hall, and uh, this is the account by the guy who led the group that rescued Lincoln Hall from near the summit of Everest, his name was Dan Mazur, and uh, this is Dan's account, sitting to our left, so they're approaching the summit of Everest, And he writes, sitting to our left, about two feet from a 10,000-foot drop was a man. Not dead, not sleeping, but sitting cross-legged in the process of changing his shirt. He had his down suit unzipped to the waist, his arms out of the sleeves, was wearing no hat, no gloves, no sunglasses, had no oxygen mask, regulator, ice axe, oxygen, no sleeping bag, no mattress, no food, nor water bottle. Again, keep in mind, he's near the summit of Everest. It's a bad place, and it is really cold, and this is the condition this guy was in. Lincoln Hall, the guy who was sitting there, says, I imagine you're surprised to see me here. Now, this was a moment of total disbelief to all of us. Here was a gentleman, apparently lucid, who had spent the night without oxygen at 8,600 meters, without proper equipment and barely clothed, and he's alive. We stopped and began to talk to the man who we found out was Lincoln Hall, an Australian from the Blue Mountains. It became clear that he, in fact, was extremely close to death in our non-medically qualified opinions. He had sustained severe frostbite in every finger and did not want to keep his gloves or his hat on. His fingers looked like ten waxy candlesticks. His head wagged and jerked around, his beady eyes embedded in a frosty face, trying to focus on something, on anything. He seemed to be in deep distress, shivered uncontrollably, and kept trying to pull himself closer to the edge of the cornice, to the point where that we physically had to hold him back and eventually anchored him to the snow. Lincoln later told us that he believed that he was on a boat, not a mountain, and that he wanted to jump overboard into the sea, i.e. 10,000 feet down the Kangshung face. We fed him snacks and hot water and juice that we'd brought with us and gave him our oxygen to breathe. We pulled all his clothes back on and talked to him. They radioed down to base camp and had their staff come back up with some rescuers and uh, were able to get him off the mountain. He writes, the entire four hours we spent with Lincoln, he was fairly active and even thrashed around a bit. 
We had to take extra care to fasten him securely to the slope, as whoever had left him there to die the night before had not tied him to anything, and it seemed just sort of a miracle that he had not fallen off the ridge during the night. That is a desperate situation, and the situation we find ourselves in without Christ is not really unlike that. In fact, it's worse. And we share a lot of commonalities with Lincoln Hall, right? Imminent danger. The inability to think clearly, right? The deception that we buy into. I mean, here he thinks he's on the side of a boat. He wants to jump over into the warm Caribbean Sea. But really he's jumping to his death, right? That's, that's the world we live in. That's the power of Satan over us in this desperate situation. These lies and the inability to think clearly sometimes because of the cultural pressures and, and so on and so forth. We find ourselves in a desperate situation, The carols of Christmas do a really great job of acknowledging the brokenness of the world and the desperate situation that we find ourselves in. The title uh, for the message that I took, that I decided to take, is actually from a a carol we don't really sing here very often. Um, I don't even remember last time we sung it, but God rest ye merry gentlemen. And it's got this great line in there that Christ came to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. To save us all from Satan's power. You look down through, and um, oh, there, I always forget to show the picture. I always put a picture, and there's Lincoln Hall. Um, it was Mookie Betts last week. It's Lincoln Hall this week. But that's, there he is the day he was, he was rescued. Um, but the Christmas carols, they do a great job of, 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 of acknowledging this brokenness to save us all from Satan's power. Uh, you have lines, and thou didst leave thy throne to set thy people free, implying that we were imprisoned. Um, uh, joy to the world references uh, sin and sorrows. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. And it speaks of the curse that we are under. Hark the herald angels sing. Say, uh, born that man no more may die. That's our condition. Death, physical death, spiritual death. Come thou long expected Jesus, says born to set thy people free. Again, implying our, our uh, imprisonment and our bondage. O come, O come, Emmanuel speaks of freeing us from Satan's tyranny. In O Holy Night that we just sang a few minutes ago, long lay the world in sin and error pining. Uh, The thought is captured well in the carols that we are in a desperate place. We are that guy on the edge of the mountain facing death and brokenness and suffering apart from Jesus Christ. That's our condition. Do we realize that, how desperate we are? So let's talk about this. What do we mean by Satan's power? Right? What do we mean by Satan's power? Is he just this little guy in a red leotard suit that sits on my shoulder? Eat another cookie. You know? Um, It tempts us. Little pitchfork, pointy tail. No, we better understand that he is a powerful adversary and a foe that we need to be aware of. Satan is a powerful adversary who rules over this world. His name, uh, Satan, Satan, the, the Satan, it, it, it literally means the adversary. That's what his name means. He's the adversary. He's also throughout Scripture called the devil, the serpent, Beelzebul, which means the master of the house. Again, a nod to his authority and control. He's called the evil one. 
In Revelation chapter 12, we get a great picture of who he is, the, the, the great red dragon of Revelation 12, and you see his, his power and his rage and his evil intent, his hatred of, of the child that was going to be born in Bethlehem. Like He wants to crush it in his teeth the moment it is born. And, and the passage there in Revelation goes on to speak about how he hates those who follow this, this king. He wants to destroy them. He wants to direct his fury towards them. Throughout scripture, we find other references to him. John chapter 12, verse 31, is referred to as the ruler of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, and what I did is instead of giving you all, I just gave you all these scripture passages, so you can check them out a little bit later. It was way too many blanks to put in a, in a, in a handout. But in 2 Corinthians 4, um, he's referred to as the God of this world who has blinded the minds of unbelievers. The God of this world. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, he's referred to as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. John 8, 44, he's referred to as a liar and as the father of lies. There down that very last line of John 8, 44. In Revelation 12, 9, He's referred to as one who deceives and blinds. Uh, he's the deceiver of the whole world, John writes in Revelation. Second Corinthians there. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 11.14, Paul writes that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Looks good. He looks appealing. He looks harmless. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. We could go on to other passages, right? In Genesis 3, he, he, he tempts. You see right away his nature. He tempts Eve there in the Garden of Eden. In Zechariah 3 and in Revelation 12, he's referred to as the accuser of the brothers. He opposes and he hinders God's work. And Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 2.18 that Satan opposes us. Of course, all throughout Revelation, we see his opposition to the church of Jesus Christ. One commentator's reading, it was, a, it, was a, it was an interesting thought. I never thought of it before. He wrote, Satan is much more prominent in the New Testament. You know, you think about it. By name, Satan's only referenced, to, three, as, to my memory, I can think of three or four times in the Old Testament. You know, Job is the big one. Uh, a couple other places, the passage there in Zechariah, the accuser, of course, the serpent. Beyond that, you don't see him referenced a whole lot more in the Old Testament, but you get to the New Testament, and there's this small concentration of about three years in the gospel, and he and his demons are all over the place. He's much more active. Apparently, he's very active in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, really comes to the forefront. And this, this commentator wrote this. He's much more prominent in the New Testament, and I love this. Apparently, being flushed out by the appearance of Christ. He's been flushed out. Like, there's a problem. <laughs> this baby is a threat. And all of a sudden, he becomes much more active. These passages demonstrate, they indicate that Satan dominates his human subjects. He has influence and control over them. 1 John 5.19 says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It's quite a statement. Genesis chapter 3, we get a picture right away of how he operates. He appears in the Garden of Eden. He lies to Eve. He questions God's goodness. 
He questions God's character. He tries to tell Eve that what God has told you, it's restrictive, Eve. It's limited. God really has his best interest in mind, not yours. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to be like him. Eve, do your own thing. Right? Isn't this the world we live in today? The same lies are being told thousands of years later. Don't listen to God. You're your own authority. God doesn't have your best interests in mind. His ways are restrictive. His commands are old-fashioned. They're out of tune. He still lies. He still tempts. He still calls into question God's goodness and character. Adam and Eve's choice in the garden, listening to him, resulted in the fall. They experienced the consequences that Satan knew would come. And he does gain a degree of power and control over God's creation in that moment. Power and control that God allows him to have, but power and control nonetheless. So the effects of Satan's power are significant. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. They tell us that Satan gained power over death. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death... He might destroy the one who has the power of death. All right, that's Satan. Satan, the power of death. That is the devil. And, it, and deliver all those who fear, through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Right? So Jesus had to come and die and conquer death because Satan held this power of death. And through that power of death, he also held this power of fear. Right? Humanity fears death. And rightly so. It has a 100% success rate against humanity. Right? No man has been able to conquer death, except one. <laughs> but we live in fear of it. That's why we want the fountain of youth or, or whatever. We've we got to find a way to conquer it. We can't do it. And so Satan has wielded that power, and he's wielded that fear over humanity for thousands of years. We live in fear of death. Sinful humanity was in exile and separated uh, from God. This is part of Satan's power. When he exerted over us, it sent us into exile. It started there in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve took those last steps out of the garden. I can't imagine what that felt like. I can't imagine what it felt like in the nights that followed that as they began to experience the effects of the curse. I I picture Adam on nights walking out of his shelter, his tent, whatever, and looking back towards Eden and thinking, if only, if only. But it's, it's gone. It's gone. Exile, we live in exile. We live in exile. We're separated from God. Paul writes of this in Ephesians chapter 2. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. We were outsiders. We were in exile. That's a sense of Satan's power, sending us into exile, separated from God. We were meant to be home with God in close relationship with him. Right? We were slaves in bondage to sin, I, uh, um, that we were under the, um, I lost my place here, uh, we were under the curse of sin. We were under the curse of sin. All creation groaning. Genesis 3, the, 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 the thorns and, and, and death and the pain of childbearing. Satan's power. Slaves. In bondage to sin, Romans 6, 17, you were once slaves. 
We're susceptible to his lies, his lies and deception. We read that in 2 Corinthians 4. We're tempted by the world system, 1 John 2, 15 and 16. He wields his power in this way. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. This is a way that Satan wields his power. This is the warning in Revelation, Babylon. Babylon looks so good. The lights, the allure of Babylon. And all that goes with it. The church is warned throughout Revelation, don't go after Babylon. Babylon dies. But he wields his power in that way. Look at Babylon. He puts it out there to us, to our kids. Hey, look, go this way. We're subject to persecution because Satan hates the followers of God. Again, this is the warning throughout Revelation. After the dragon is cast down, it says, Woe to you who dwell on the earth. He's mad. (laughs) He's angry. He knows his time's short, and he's coming after the people of God. And Jesus warns us of this. He warns his disciples, Hey, listen, don't be surprised if the world hates you. They hated me. They're going to hate you. It's going to be bad. There's evil forces, right? We have brothers and sisters all around the world today being persecuted uh, for their faith, being killed, right? There's demonic activity behind this. This is the evil one in his rage going after the people of God. The pessimism, despair, the nihilism, and hopelessness in our world are all a result of Satan's work and the exertion of his power. He's blinded us. He's blinded our world by telling us things like all roads lead to God. He's blinded us by saying, you know, you you can earn your way to heaven. You can do enough good works and do enough right things that you can get, you can earn favor with God. You can't. The Bible tells us our works are not good enough. We will always fail. We just need Jesus Christ. But our world tells us don't, don't listen to Jesus and belittles Jesus. Our world tells us that we're our own authority. It doesn't matter. There's no absolute truth. Just whatever you feel like, that's what you are. Don't listen to anyone else. You define you. The lies about sexuality and everything else in our culture. Satan has done this. And by the way, be very, very careful as we look out at our world. It's easy for us to go, oh, there's the enemy, there's the enemy, there's the enemy. And we look at these people who struggle with these different sins. And we look at the LGBTQ community. And we look at our coworkers who do certain things. And we're like, they're the bad guy, they're the enemy. No, they're not. They've been lied to. They're people for whom Jesus Christ died. And they need to be rescued. And they need to be left. We will speak the truth unapologetically. We won't milk toast it under, well, God loves everyone. But we will love them and hopefully be able to communicate the powerful truth of the gospel to them. Right? The people to be loved. Satan has blinded their eyes, and I hope it breaks your hearts when we think about that. So why are we talking so much about Satan? Well, because the idea here today is not to magnify and glorify him. I hate him. No, that's not the point, actually. The Bible does what many good stories do, right? Uh, The best stories, the best epics really exalt for a while the strength of the enemy, right? Like Darth Vader can chokehold people from a distance. Like no one's beating that guy. Like, oh no, the empire's going to win, the rebellion's going down, right? Sauron, no one can, right? That's why we love, I mean, I could watch the movie Miracle over and over and over and over and over again, right? You love that, like no one's beating the big bad Soviets. 
but Herb Brooks did, right? right? So the, the, the heroes of uh, the, the hockey team, um, it makes it look better. Um, that's why I love World War II. I, you, know, you, you don't get much worse than Hitler. And to be able to read the history and that he loses. Like, man, Germany was a big, bad machine. They were. Uh, but they lost, right? Well, the Bible, right? Yeah, Satan is bad. He's strong. He's powerful. But when we talk about his strength and power, it exalts and magnifies Christ, right? Because, because Christ is more powerful and more effective. So as strong and powerful as, as Satan is, Jesus is better. Jesus is stronger. In fact, that's why I love Revelation 12 so much. It is one of my favorite passages. That whole scene where there's war in heaven and, and, and Satan is cast down. Remember, who, who does the casting out of Satan? It's not even Jesus. Jesus isn't even going to mess with that. It's Michael, the archangel. It's like Jesus is like, Michael, can you take care of that for me? Just, just get him out of here. And Michael's like, you know, like I love. And then, then the terminology is great too. It says when, when, he had, when the dragon saw that he had been cast down. It's almost like, you know, he, he, he wakes up on a beach somewhere and, and, you know, and, on earth. And he's like, whoa, I've been cast down. And it, like, he didn't even know it hit him. And this is the strength of God. It's the power of heaven. Against this dragon, Jesus is better. Jesus' forces are greater. John 14, 30, Jesus says this, The ruler of this world has no claim on me. (laughs) He has no claim on me. He can do nothing to me. He can't touch me. It's this great quote here. This is uh, Russell Moore in his book, Onward. He writes this, the Hebrew people conserved for millennia a story, a counter-reading of the universe from the way things seem to be. In the biblical story, our primal problem is kinglessness, a kinglessness that has enslaved us to a tyranny that we can't even see. Our ancestors were to become kings and queens of the universe, but they surrendered their rule to a dark being, a reptilian invader. When humanity joined these mysterious rebel spirits in their insurrection, the harmony of the universe was disrupted. The communion between humanity and God was broken, as was the communion between the human beings themselves. Human nature, meant to be governed by God's word, now took on the nature of their criminal spirit overlords and was driven along both by the craving of the appetites and the fear of accusation and judgment. Nature now bucked against humanity, sensing in it not the reign of God, but the dictatorship of a foreign power. And yet, from the beginning, the Creator pledged that this aggression would not stand. Right there in Genesis 3, right after the pronouncement of the curse, God, the Creator, says, understand something. That one day, the seed of the woman will come and she and he will crush the head of the serpent. This rebellion will not stand. Right? A baby born in Bethlehem is the answer. It's the answer in the sense that Jesus enters Satan's territory and exerts his power and authority. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 11. I know I've put a lot of scripture up on there, but I wanted you to read this one along with me in your copy of the Word of God. Luke chapter 11, verse 17. This is that account after Jesus casts out demons. And the Pharisees, of course, never wanting to give Jesus any credit for anything, was like, 
Well, he cast out that demon by the power of Satan. Jesus like looks at him. He's like, "Are you guys not you nuts?" <laughs> he's in essence what he's like. Are you dumb? Really? I'm casting out Satan by the power of Satan. <laughs> Jesus just calls him out. This is where this picks up. Verse 17, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul? If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? (laughs) That's a great question. Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons... Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, and the strong man here is Satan, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. I love that. Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is here. And I have walked into the strong man's fortress. And I have disarmed him, I've taken his armor, I've plundered his goods, and I kicked his dog on the way out the door. <laughs> Just kidding, Jesus wouldn't do that, but... Maybe if it was a mean dog, a demon dog. This is what Jesus is saying. I've come. I'm here. I was watching the, uh, the Star Wars uh, series, Andor. Um, and uh, there's a scene in there, the, uh, the good guys, the story of Cassie and Andor. And if you don't know the story, I'm not, I don't feel bad about spoiling it. Star Wars has been out since the 1970s, so if you don't know what happens, that's your fault. All right, so, um, um, but the plans to the Death Star were stolen by the rebels. And that's how Luke Skywalker knew, you know, we've got to shoot these missiles down this little exhaust pipe and blow up this whole thing. Like, what idiot designs a thing like that to begin with? But that's how easy it was, right? But anyways, how did they know that? Well, it's a spy. His name was Cassian Andor. And he died, in, in, uh, but his last act was, was beaming up the plans, and this is uh, in the movie Rogue One. He, he beam, they beam up the plans to the rebels so they can have these plans, and then, and then he dies. So the series Andor is about his life and how he becomes this spy. And one of his first assignments that he's part of is he goes to this planet with this group of, of, of rebels, and they steal from a vault a quarter, uh, a quarter of a year's worth of salary out of a vault, this entire sector of the universe, and they make off with it. So then the scene shifts back to uh, the Imperial intelligence officers who are, who are talking about this heist and how they pulled it off and the problem that it is. And, and one of the guys says you know, something about this robbery that they, communicate, that they discommitted. And, and the head intelligence agent, she's standing there, and she's looking out the window, and she goes, no. She said, this wasn't a robbery. This was an announcement they were wanting us to know that they're here and that they're a problem. This is an announcement. And I thought, I'm like, that's what, that's what Jesus is doing here. By coming and casting out demons. And in this statement right here, he's like, this is an announcement. I'm here and I'm a problem. 
for the current world order. Its time is done. It doesn't have strength against me. The strong man is strong, but one stronger has entered his house and is a problem and will take him out. Jesus demonstrates that. The time of Satan was done when the baby arrived. Jesus exerted his power. He demonstrates this so many ways throughout his life. And in Mark 1.27, he casts out, he rebukes the unclean spirits. They come out and the people recognize it. What's this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. They hadn't seen this before. Jesus is making an announcement. He exerts his power over death and sickness and nature and the consequences of, of the curse. Right? He raises Lazarus and the widow's son from the dead. He, he demonstrates his, his power. Death doesn't have dominion over Jesus. All of his miracles, they're all an undoing of the curse. He calms the raging sea, right? His power over nature, the natural disasters of this world that are a product of the curse, the Son of God can turn that back. The healings, the sickness, the blindness, all of that, it's all a result of the curse. And Jesus is demonstrating in his power, he is greater and he has the ability to turn that all back. Satan's power is broken in so many ways, Jesus demonstrated his power over Satan when he resisted his temptations in the desert. In Matthew chapter 4, I love that passage and I love how it ends. Jesus, every time, in his weakness, 40 days of not eating, I would have been like, eh, I'll do whatever, <laughs> you know. Not Jesus. Satan comes to him in his weakest and tempts him, and Jesus comes back with him at Scripture every time. And at the end of it, after the last temptation, do you remember what it says? That account ends with, and the devil left him. Loser. He lost. He couldn't even tempt Jesus in his weakest state. Jesus triumphs over him through his cross. Colossians 2.15, one of my favorite passages. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. When Jesus would at his weakest, naked, humbly, shamefully hanging on a cross, as weak as he could be, overwhelmed Satan at his strongest. Jesus embarrassed Satan in that moment. Completely embarrassed him. Annihilated him. Blew him out of the water. Whatever adjective you want to speak of. About a complete and utter defeat. Jesus proclaims liberty to all in bondage. He proclaims truth. He proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. The light that shines in the darkness is, is God's truth. Speaking out in the dark world that we, we live in. Jesus says, I am the truth. This is all summarized in a statement in John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus speaks truth into the lives of our culture. Satan's power is broken when we listen to Jesus' truth. So, so many implications for us, right? So many implications for us. Jesus is the feet of Satan. First and foremost, Colossians 2. Romans, places like Romans 8, there's no condemnation. My sins, the debt that I've owed is canceled. It's been 
paid for by Jesus Christ. My sins are forgiven. I don't have to worry about doing all the right things to win God's favor. Jesus won it for me. I just have to bow the knee and confess my sin and accept him as my Savior and my Lord, and my debt is canceled. Dane Ortland, uh, writer, writes this, we were running full speed in the other direction, and he chased us down, subdued our rebellion, and opened our eyes to see our need of him and his all-sufficiency to meet that need. Ortland goes on to say, we were not drowning in need of a life vest. We were already at the bottom of the ocean, dead. Right? It's not Jesus is throwing a life vest for me to grab onto and live. I was already drowned. But he's forgiven me. I have forgiveness. My debt is canceled. I can never be separated from the love of God. Paul asks his questions in Romans 8, right? Can anything separate us? And he lists all these things, and he lists powers and principalities. No, Satan himself cannot separate me from the love of God. And I know, and I, I work with students here. T- you know, one of the things they struggle with sometimes is I'm, I'm not good enough. I'm not this. I compare myself to this other. I'm broken. I'm messed up. God loves me? Yeah. Yeah, he does. And there's nothing that can separate you from his love. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Satan himself cannot pry you from the love of God. I have freedom from physical and spiritual death. I don't have to fear it. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I can overcome Satan. I can overcome sin. I can overcome temptation, right? James, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I don't live in fear. I'm able to escape the snares of the devil. I can endure tribulation because the perspective that my king has conquered and my king rules, and I'm encouraged that this present darkness is passing away. It is not going to be like this forever. It is not going to be like this forever. A revolution is coming. I don't live in fear. I remember one time Ken Rudolph was relating a story about Lake Ann. There was a, there was a girl, you probably know, I've heard the story a bunch of times, Dan. Uh, this girl was a witch who had come to camp there at Lake Ann. This was years ago and attended as a camper. And uh, the news started spreading amongst the, uh, the, the staff. There's a witch here. There's a witch here. It's a camper. It's a witch. You know, and they're all like. And so Ken said the first night of chapel, and he goes, and I think it was when they were in the old chapel. Um, and uh, so he, he, he walks in, um, and there's all these, these workers. They're looking in the door. They're peeking back the door, and they're looking in the chapel. And Ken's like, what are you looking at? And they're like, there's a practicing witch in there. It's a practicing witch. And Ken's like, oh, really? He goes, well, let me, let me see. So he decides to have some fun with them. So he, they move, and he goes, and he opens the door. For those of you who know Ken Rudolph, you can picture this happening. He goes, ah! And he closes the door. And they're like, oh, no, what? What, what? And he goes, there's 200 practicing Christians in there. And they're like, ah, oh, Ken. And he's like, right? Who's afraid of who? We don't fear. We don't shirk back. Tom's going to come up and lead us in the last song. Listen, we live in brokenness, right? That video captured it well. I think it's a lot akin to, here I'll go back to a World War II, right? He had, uh, he had D-Day. And the troops, the Allied troops stormed the beach of Normandy. At D-Day, the war basically took a turn and was over, in a manner of speaking. Because once that happened, my grandpa was part of that, that. They landed there, and they drove all the way to Berlin. Ultimately, led to the fall of Hitler. 
And VE Day was celebrated not too long after that. You had D-Day, which was the announcement. And the events happened there that sealed the victory of VE Day. Jesus has landed. He's exerted his power. His force has come. And that victory is coming. We just live in the in-between. But don't doubt the fact that it is coming. Satan's power is broken.